you think we'll ever get live shows again? Um, yeah, we're definitely gonna get live shows again. Not for. But how how long how long until I get to see a live show again? I mean, to find to find a live show, does a live stream count? No, I'm not live. No, I want, it does not count. I, I want to be around sweaty bodies and people holding their cell phones up. I never thought I'd miss that, but I think I actually do. Um, in New York City, I would say like next fall. I mean, the problem <laughs> is it's sort of the last place that's going to be able to come back, right? Like, unless you've taped off sections. Yeah, well, here's an interesting thing. My girlfriend works for Bowery Ballroom. She actually bartends there. And, you know, there's also Bowery Presents, which puts on shows at venues all over New York for people who don't live in New York. And currently their schedule has a Mercury Lounge show still on the schedule for July. And Mercury Lounge, I think, like, what, like, max capacity, like, what, 60? <laughs> um, no, but, like, Mercury Lounge max capacity, I'd say 152. So it's interesting that, but it's interesting that they're keeping that open just in case. And then they have like Bowery Ballroom is like nothing until like late August, which will probably get canceled anyway. Um, I don't know. I find it all a little depressing because live shows um, are fun and like good times, but it's probably more depressing for the artists because it's a major revenue stream for them. Um, in case you haven't figured it out yet, uh, we were talking about COVID and the worldwide quarantine and it's complicated but when it comes to music the biggest issue is that all the shows have been canceled you're listening to money for nothing a podcast about music and capitalism i'm saxon baird and i'm with sam backer and yeah we're talking today about covid19 and music not really <laughs> i think sometimes about how it's called covid19 because it was discovered in 2019 like tail end and like is that really is that really the reason? That's why. And I keep I don't know. I, I kind of feel like COVID twenty would have been a cooler name. Like I think about that sometimes. We were so close to it just being like COVID twenty. Because it's twenty to nineteen. I don't know why. Because no, yeah, it's twenty twenty. Right, no, I get that, but I don't know if it'd be cooler. <laughs> no, it'd be cooler. Anyway. All right, all right. Anyway, uh yeah, so no, um, yeah, so we, why we might be bummed about not being able to hit a live show, at least I'm bummed about not being able to hit a live show any other place than like Zoom or online for the next year, maybe, maybe less, hopefully. Um, the ones that are most hurt by this are definitely the artists themselves, because as you and I have been talking about, and anybody who's been paying t attention to the music industry for the last decade or so, live shows have really become the bread and butter for most artists and now all live shows are pretty much canceled indefinitely so artists are like really really hurting um but i guess before we get into that um what are you know what what are some interesting moves by some artists you've seen during quarantine to stay uh i don't know in the streaming spotlight or something well, i mean it's interesting right um and this is a, a topic we're definitely going to cover more in the future um but right, streaming's been a technology that's kind of been, it, it's like been like the next real technology, um, or the next big thing. I feel like it's been situated that way for a couple of years now. Um, I remember personally when Facebook Live first became a real feature and I was kind of like scrolling through Facebook at work and all of a sudden I saw like, uh, I forget who it was. It was like fucking like pissed jeans just ripping down a stage in Europe. 
that was happening at that moment. And I just like sat there and was like, if you haven't seen Piss Jeans live, they're fucking rad. You can't see them for two years. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. um, it, it just like ripping down a stage in like Denmark or somewhere. I think it was Piss Jeans anyway. Um, and I would just like <laughs> sat there transfixed. And there is something kind of amazing about that. Um, but I feel like, anyway, besides that novelty, I think that the industry has been kind of slow to, to, or certain, much of the industry has been kind of slow to make this a central part of its business or a central part of, of, of its um, revenue streams. And the question is going to be whether that changes now that that's kind of all there is in the live space. I mean, so, oh, no, no, no. So, so, so I mean... There have been all kinds, it feels like, of, of crazy responses to this. Uh, the ones, some of the most obvious ones, uh, as always, uh, the jam bands are at the fr- forefront of technological innovation in music. They've been there since fucking 69. <laughs> um, like the Grateful Dead, uh, early simulcast, early... Uh, uh, advanced ticket purchases they would always like broadcast their shows on the radio and live streaming um early adopters of the internet and live streaming of concerts and concert visuals as an integral part of uh, a business plan that's been uh, certain my understanding is like fish has been doing that for every single video uh, or sorry every single live show they make a fully produced video that fans can buy as part of the purchase price of the ticket since like I don't know, like uh, years now, maybe 2014, 2015. Um, and definitely those bands were the first ones again in this moment. I saw to like pull out uh, live streams of previous performances as uh, fundraisers. So Fish does, does this like dinner in a movie where they live stream a full performance on YouTube every Friday night. They've been doing that since COVID started. And then both the Grateful Dead doing archival stuff and dead and co doing more recent shows have been, and I assume other jam bands too have been, they were on that like day one. They're like the jam community needs to come together and we got to keep on jamming. Okay. Yeah. But when, when is dead and co and fish going to play Fortnite? (laughs) (laughs) My reference is to Travis Scott, which you could talk more about. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I know a little bit less about this. I mean, have you fucking watched that? video saxon <laughs> well it's pretty wild but i'm also kind of like is it just wild because like i don't play fortnite and don't like engage with like the gaming community as much or as much at all uh, <laughs> or is it and that's why i'm like wow this is crazy or is it actually like crazy i mean it's the most neuromancer shit i've ever seen yeah can we get a comment from william gibson on uh, the travis scott fortnite uh, concert like it, it it also felt in this weird way like the gorillas to me like yeah that's the, a good point in the gorillas like in their live stuff and in their in their visual medium there's this idea like in a weird way like they were a cartoon band but they were a a fake cartoon band right like like they were a cartoon band but they weren't really a cartoon band no one was like engaging them as cartoons it was like this is a, a music project and their shtick was that they appeared in cartoons and this felt like the gorillas if it was fucking real this was like a cartoon performance and people were in the cartoon bouncing around it was fucking wild travis scott cartoon video game avatar maybe is the more appropriate like up-to-date uh like description what did i call it (laughs) well you're like cartoon i guess it's more sort of like an avatar now right 
Yeah, I guess. So, so yeah, I guess so. I mean, so anyway, my understanding is like Travis Scott performed in Fortnite. Um, that people uh, were in like in the visual environment of the performance. You can watch the videos online of them, kind of like bouncing around it. Travis appears as this like two hundred foot tall, like fire breathing skeleton. And, like, shit shoots around him, and, like, it's kind of, like, uh, threatening, and he zips in and out. Um, and in some ways, this builds on Fortnite has long had a relationship to music that certain dance moves um, and and specifically, like, like TikTok-influenced hip-hop dance moves were available that characters could, like, do them. Like, uh, characters can do the, um, shit, what's it called? That dance move. Uh... It's like kind of like skiing, showing my age yeah. here. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> I don't know the name of it, but yeah, like Cardi B used it for like a music video. But then it also kind of went in reverse where then like, I mean, I don't like, so you they're getting the dance moves like off of TikTok. They're incorporating them into the video, into the video game, into Fortnite. And then it's turning around and like musicians and artists and sports players are now then using those dances like you know, when they celebrate a goal or like on stage or in like a music video. So it's almost this like cyclical system going on. Cyclical system, except that black teenagers are still having their intellectual property expropriated. Yeah, I guess that's that's sort of the reality right now of, of all these streaming platforms is that there's a big, huge company behind it that's like trying to make money off of whatever you're posting online. Yeah, no, no, no which is a whole like which which is actually like I mean a thing that we could actually talk about when it comes to the fact that like if there's no live shows and everything's kind of going online then there is that sort of question of like intellectual property like who owns the live show when piss jeans or somebody bigger or whatever decides to perform live on facebook live or instagram live or like whatever but that's like a whole sort of like other thing that we can talk about maybe later but like right now i think that like what you're seeing is you're seeing a lot of artists sort of try to okay like all these concerts then a huge revenue stream has been canceled like, what can I do online? And maybe not necessarily what can I do online to make money, but, like, how do I just go online and, like, use these new platforms where maybe they wasn't really in their focus? Like, for example, you know, I don't know how much TikTok was in the focus of Beyonce and company because I'm sure she has this huge team behind her. But, like, now it's, like, when there is no live show and you can't really do interviews other than through some sort of streaming platform or TikTok or Instagram, suddenly that becomes, like, the main focus. And you're starting to see it sort of, like, bubble up a little bit where you were kind of telling me before this show about certain like remix from Beyonce and Nicki Minaj that like kind of came directly out of that whole TikTok world, which maybe you can talk more about. Oh yeah. I mean like TikTok is been this uh, extraordinary new proving ground for music. Um, and so it was, no, it was a very weird moment this past week where both Beyonce and Nicki Minaj dropped remixes of, Maybe not like TikTok fueled, but certainly like um, ex- top trends on TikTok dance songs. So uh, Nikki jumped on a remix of a Doja Cat song. Um, Beyonce jumped on a remix of uh, Megan Thee Stallion song. It's funny because and these songs are and these and these songs are like really popular like on TikTok because like people do like various like skits or videos on TikTok to these songs. Both of these are and there's even extremely like, popular songs on TikTok right. that are not just and I think, like the center of yeah. their own memes, but are the center of I would say like small scale meme economies. 
like they're not just the central uh, meme of Savage, which is the Megan the Stallion song, but there's also parodies of that song, which then have their own. There's a there's a Tiger King parody of Savage <laughs> about Carol Baskin <laughs> that then is its own meme right so these are like big large scale memes able to propagate smaller scale memes around them yeah and like not to say that like Nicki minaj and like beyonce likes teams weren't or then the artists themselves weren't already like noticing these kind of things but i would like argue that now that like everything's sort of like canceled and not not canceled in the in the twitter way like actually like post postponed uh there's more of a focus on that like how because that's what everybody's on right everybody's like flipping through their social media on tiktok on instagram all, the, all these places at fort you know playing fortnite and now there's like such a more focus of these artists on to something like that yeah no i mean in this case it was really interesting and felt to me super fucking indicative because they both it's the same art it's the same move right it's like right. more established female star jumping on up and coming less established female star um in a weird way it's almost reversed right like beyonce jumps on the person who's like a spitter and nikki jumped on the track that is more of like a singery pop star vibe right which is like the yeah the reverse of like how what they're kind of known for yeah but uh i mean i have no it'd be interesting to know if this was if this happened prior to covid like the plans for this remix um like certainly if vibes can be recording in prison beyonce can be recording in lockdown <laughs> she's referencing vibes cartel right who for like what like four years now has still been putting out new new dance hall tunes even though Fucking he's been ten, in prison for murder 10 yeah. years dude that's been 10 years <laughs> like quite eight yeah i think more eh, like se seven or eight yeah because i was eight. still writing for mtv iggy r.i.p one of the many uh music outlets that has folded in the last like decade shouts uh, and, to like, the verticals yeah right shout out to <laughs> yeah right for real uh but it, yeah well that's a good point so but i guess it doesn't really matter whether or not it was planned pre-covid like lockdown or not it's that like these like streams are becoming more popular and now that we all are in quarantine and we're like looking at our phone like 23 hours a day it's become like the main focus you know and like you and you do see what, and what I also you also see the sort of more traditional like live performance stream. There was like the Post Malone doing an hour. The Post Malone. There was Post. There was also Post Malone doing an hour plus set of like Nirvana songs with like Travis Barker, Blink One Eighty Two on drums, and that was like to raise money for World Health Organization. And like that was just more of a standard like performance. Everybody like six plus feet apart, <laughs> but it's some like secret venue in Utah, and obviously like no crowd. But that's kind of more in the vein of like a Tiny Desk concert. And where I think previously, you know, before the lockdown, that was kind of kind of just a sort of like supplemental thing that an artist would do. And for me, it's become it's it exposes how lacking it is compared to a live show and not as def and definitely not as interesting in as when it comes to sort of like these economies and these like sort of talking about how artists make money or how artists like stay relevant. It's not as interesting as like Travis Scott appearing in. Fortnite or you know Beyonce hopping on a remix of like a make this out the stallion uh song that has like basically maybe not become popular because of TikTok but has like certainly increased its popularity through that platform yeah it, it's gonna be interesting to see which of these are one-offs 
right? Like Witcher, these are like like hundred gex playing on Minecraft. Like that's a kick, a, a sold out show where they cap capped the number of people who could attend. Is my understanding? That's like a fun thing. I would be surprised if that becomes the future of the music industry. I mean, for me, like I said, it, it was just supplemental. But now that like we don't have live shows, it's become like the main source. But then the question is like these artists who rely on live shows as a major source of their revenue, you know, they're not going to make that with like, with, with like live streaming that, you know, let's theoretically say this goes on for the next year. That's going to hurt a lot of independent artists and a lot of like bigger, bigger artists as well. I mean, I'm sure like, you know, like a Drake concert, he's going to like, he makes like, you know, a mil plus, <laughs> you know? And so it's going to hurt all artists, you know, without the live show. And they're definitely not going to make anywhere near that, when it comes to, you know, the the classic whatever, like, you know, Tiny Desk concert style, like, stream. But it is interesting, the sort of idea that if you cap the amount of people that actually can watch it, you know, maybe add some other elements. Like, can you start charging for an online, you know, video game concert? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I feel I like mean, people I would pay for probably it. probably can. Yeah, people would pay for I it. I think you probably can, especially, like conspicuous consumption is conspicuous consumption right and if it and that kind of gets to some of these questions about like what what a live performance is right um and i feel like if it's just if a live performance is just seeing music in a room with other people um then no it can't do what a live performance does but if part of a live performance is like being seen by other people in a specific way, if it's about spending money for an experience, if it's about the the kind of singularity of that experience, then like yeah, I feel like it's possible that some of these streams, uh, some of these new venues for performance could begin to like tap into the the thereness of the live recording. S- side note about that post Malone stream, a. Dude can play guitar better than I thought he could. I don't know why everybody's so surprised about that. I mean, he used to play in, like, a metal band. Like, okay, like, whatever. <laughs> I think the thing that I'm most surprised about is that, um, not that, like, Nirvana songs are, like, super difficult. Although they did did play some some tracks. Like, they played um, Something in the Way, I think is the name of the track, which, like, has, like, a cello on it. But uh, I think I'm more surprised. I was like, when did you all practice this? <laughs> <laughs> um which makes makes because it was like pretty like a meet it was like in april right and like i don't know I, I was i was a little bit i was a little bit more impressed with that that he like didn't seem to be reading any of the lyric any of the, of the lyrics and they played like 15 songs over an hour so I, I was like like i don't know i guess he just like we went into quarantine and the first thing that post malone did was like and uh, travis barker and the rest of the group like decided to just like learn like 15 nirvana songs okay <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, first off, you heard it here first. Um, Post Malone is going to release a Nickelback album next year, and it's going to sell a bajillion fucking copies. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Like a rock record? Like not just a rock record, like a Nickelback record. <laughs> okay, explain. Like me, like uh, um, um, like literally uh. This is how you remind me of how I really am. Like a Nickelback record. Wow, that was a good impression. I guess I actually don't even know if I've ever even like. I I could not name you a Nickelback song. I don't have. I'm like actually completely different. Like I'm not on the Nickelback as terrible train because I just like I'm just completely different 
and indifferent. Uh, I mean, I heard them at some point and I like wasn't interested. We've got this scene, right, where artists are clearly jumping and struggling to try to find a new way to do, to connect with fans and to do what live music has been doing for them for the past decade or so. Um, which seems to me like a really good jumping off point to kind of ask the question of like, what has live music been doing for these artists for the past decade or so? Um, yeah, I'm interested in hearing that because the, definitely there was a time, uh, you know, 30 plus years ago or maybe even less where there was definitely a group of people in the music industry who saw that mu- live music was uh, on the wane which is super fascinating to me and that's definitely not been the case. So how do we, I guess, how did we get here? I mean, obviously we know streaming and, you know, streaming and Napster and everything, but like, how did we get to the point where, you know, we're having like two weekends of Coachella and basically like, it's all about like playing live shows and less about actually selling records if you want to make any money at this thing. So I, I think, yeah, I think that's the question. And like, also what does playing a live show mean in that new economy? Right. Yeah. Like, we know the old version was you went on the road to support, you know, 70s, right? You released a big record. You went on the road to make some more money, to connect with your fans, to support the selling of the record. Um, And the classic trope is kind of like it's been reversed. Now you release a record and you tour behind it so that you can sell tickets. Um. But, I mean, what we've been talking about a little bit is, is how, in fact, that change of that relationship is, is actually in some ways about, like the, like, the destabilization of all those categories. Is that music itself, like, what it is to be in the music industry and what it is, like, where the actual, like, content thing is has changed. And that relationship between live music and recording music, how that's changed re- reflects that. So, um... Clearly, not just as a result of Napster, as a result of a, a, probably a, a number of factors, uh, the record industry, which had been, it's important to note, has had a boom and bust cycle always, right? And the 90s, like much of America, was fucking good times. They were pumping out extremely, do you remember fucking 1899 CDs? Yeah, man. I remember, like, I mean, I worked at record store, record stores, quote unquote, because it's not really record stores, CD stores, back in the day, warehouse, RIP. Um, and like, yeah, I remember like 1999 records, and what would that would mean price, <laughs> and I also record CDs. <laughs> yeah, not a, a not a CD copy of Prince's 1999. No. Um, so yeah, so like, you've got the record industry high on the hog from both convincing everybody to throw out their vinyl and buy everything again power move boy bands <laughs> yeah a fucking power move for sure um boy bands uh the the tail end of like the alt rock thing the economy was pretty good even though we now know it was in, almost entirely financed by consumer debt and so the fall of the record industry there's no version of this story where the record industry doesn't suffer a major collapse during the 2000s. There's just no, ver- without downloading, if they like that magical room where they, all the record executives are in a room with Sean Fanning and they're, he's like, Napster's the future. And they're like, fuck you, we're going to sue you. 
there's always like they're like if they'd only signed a deal before the genie was let out of the bottle and it's like no it was it's, it's a boom and bust industry there was gonna be a bust the intensity of the bust is it clearly increased by the fact that everyone was like fuck you with your 1999 cds um i want to steal this album as my boy system of a down <laughs> put on do you remember that album? It was just, they, they had no cover art. It was just a CD that had just the words steal this album scribbled on it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do remember that. I definitely put that in a lot of security. Remember those like plastic security things that CDs came in? <laughs> so, so you have this major bust of the record industry. And at the same time, the live music industry had been increasing through the 90s um ticket prices are increasing uh the amount of profit that is pulling in is increasing and in the moment when cd sales really start to plummet and the record industry seems to be facing uh like death and dismemberment which again it's important to note is bullshit the same people who are running music are the same people who are always running music they're the same fucking companies they did not lose they're still winning um truth but so so a little bit what happens is that you get um this period of kind of like uncertainty in the late 2000s when all of a sudden where the profit center of the industry is going to be starts to change and the clearest indicator of that is 360 deals what's a Um, what's a 360 deal so a 360 deal is, as you can imagine, a deal where the record company is all around you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, right? Like you thought you didn't have enough record company. Now you have more. Um, so p- before record companies used to sell records, right? That is their th- what they do. So when they sign a deal with an artist, it's about the records that they sell. They give an advance to record an album, then recoup that advance out of sales. And a 360 deal, uh, they come out, uh, I believe the first, uh, Robbie Williams, um, who's a British star who seemed poised to make it in America, and like so many British pop stars did not, got one of the first major ones. Uh, Madonna has an early major one. Korn has an early major one, which is a, a beautiful example of the record industry, just like betting on last year's horse. <laughs> <laughs> and you're talking about, when you mean one, you mean 360 deals. A 360 right. deal. Um, so, and basically what a 360 deal does is it means that the record companies get a cut of the entire income of an artist. They get a t- cut of merchandise. They get a cut of um, touring. They get a cut of fan club stuff. They get a cut of TV appearances. What, they get a cut of book sales. They get a cut what's of What's the exchange? Like, what, what does the artist get out of it? They get to be on a label. <laughs> okay, but what's the advantage of being on a label? Like, what is it? What is the label? I'm curious. Like, what was the label doing? Because I think that's the big question. I mean, I know for like indie artists sometimes, especially now in the era of like Bandcamp and everything. But for like a big like you know Madonna or Robbie Williams or whatever these people you're mentioning, you know, what was what was the advantage? Like, what were they doing to like help them? You know, corn write an autobiography. <laughs> so I mean, I, I I guess there's a there's a um. There's a debate. So there's my understanding. There's two kinds. There's two kinds of 360 deals: active and passive. 
a passive 360 deal is a record company just being like, fuck you, this is the deal. If you want to get the record company contacts, if you want the payola that gets your song on radio, if you want to have your video in rotation on MTV or whatever the fuck. If you want us to put a like stamp on the, or you actually send the email with the MP3 to like the guy who runs like iHeartRadio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like if you want the access of all these industry connections that can get your song played, we get a cut of this broader revenue. So that's one version. An active deal is that the record company is actually saying, we're going to help you run all this shit. That's so brutal. They're basically just uh, being like, listen, like we're gatekeepers. We get all of this no matter what. Deal with it. Yeah. So it, so the first up-and-coming band to sign a 360 deal was Paramore. How'd that go? Um, <laughs> I do feel like... It went really well. Yeah, I feel, it went really I feel well like I, I hear a lot of Paramore and like I don't personally understand why but they're definitely around yeah no i think paramore became stars um and then pretty quickly i think by like 2007 2008 warner bros is like we only sign 360 deals now and it becomes record company standard incredibly quickly um it's actually really interesting the early birth of 360 deals is it's kind of a battle so record industries start doing it but some of the very early ones that I, uh, I, we were just talking about so Madonna signs like a hundred million dollar deal with Ticketmaster. So what's really interesting about 360 deals uh, is that early on, there's actually kind of a, a battle between the various players in the industry. And so some of those major deals that we were just talking about, like Madonna's first deal is with Live Nation. Um, and Live Nation basically says, we're going to run your tours. We're going to release your album or your book or whatever you're touring behind. We know that you make more money touring than you do from releasing new Madonna records in 2006. And so basically we're your record company now. Um, and Ticketmaster did that for, for a bunch of major artists. I believe the corn deal was with Ticketmaster too, but they are sorry with live nation too. live nation did it for a bunch of these artists. But the thing is that live nation actually doesn't have the skills that a record company has. They don't have that, the connections, they don't have the A&R people. They're pretty good at producing tours for established artists and prove that they were not that good at picking winners in the musical marketplace. Yeah. I mean, look, they dropped like millions and millions and millions of dollars on corn in the mid 2000s. Like, come on now. Right. right. Um, so basically like trying to bet. Yeah. You said like on like what? Like yesterday. What did you say? Yesterday's horse. <laughs> yeah. Yesterday's horse. But. The record industry kind of saw that and saw like, oh shit, live music is increasingly central to our business. And so what we need to do is change what our business is at the most basic level. And it's actually, I think, incredibly fucking indicative that every major label changes their name during this period of time. They stop referring to themselves as record labels and start referring to themselves as music companies. Music companies, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, cuz if you can if you can't go to the store and you can't buy like a record, then like like cuz like, you know, at this point, I mean, well, I don't know, early 2000s, I guess maybe vinyl were like, vinyl was back on the was back on the up, but still in a very like niche market. And most people were getting their stuff by either down, by downloading or I guess like CDs were still like hanging on a little bit. But at that point, like what's a record, you know? Yeah. But I I also just diversifying what like record companies are just diversifying what they do. Well, I feel like it's also 
it's even like a bigger shift than that. It's actually like a fucking beautiful moment when like people's language reflects perfectly like a deeper change that they're going through. I think they're the, that that change in name, which can seem like really slight and surface level, is actually telling us something about like what music is in this period of time. That like in the sixties and seventies, when these group when these when these labels come up, what they are are record companies. They do this other shit, but what they do is sell records. And that is what this the music business is about. And all of a sudden, by the mid-2000s, that's just like not true anymore. We're in a post-record mo- moment. Not just like post-making money off records, but like what the thing that the music industry produces is now this amorphous music, which means that live sales, which means that merchandise, which means that all these things that were previously like ancillary to the main thing now are all part of this is all part of music yeah i mean would you say and so like but now the so what is the point of the record of the actual record like a full-length album in this time you know is it still like we were talking about this a little bit before before recording but what what is how does that change like does that is that just basically in service of like going on tour and having some new songs to be able to play yeah i mean i think it's a good question it's it's in service of going on tour i mean it's the it seems to me in this system that music is still the essential thing, but how music relates to money changes, right? So there's this moment when like they manage to do actually something kind of fucking incredible, which is take something that's like ineffable spiritual thing and like lock it on to a disc. So the only way you can get it is purchasing the disc. And what you get in this period of time is like music is still valuable, but now it's connected to experiences. Now it's connected to all these other things. And so I guess a record is still the way that the music, um, I guess is like uh, showcased. But if you think about it, like it's now also on TikTok, it's on movies, it's in commercials, it's in, um, in some ways live shows, which the biggest ones are basically advertisements for the sponsor brands, right? Which is how, which um, is also like from an economic standpoint, really interesting because, you know, if you think about it, the amount of cost it takes and like manpower it ta- takes, like the overhead to put on a live show is so huge compared to like, say, like creating a record. And the record actually like reaches more people. So like the way, but nonetheless, there's still this desire, this demand for going to live shows. So it's like, how do you make it profitable? And the one way to do it is getting those sponsors, you know, Verizon presents or whatever, <laughs> you know, so that they could, Bud, you know, Bud Light presents. So I mean, I but Bud Light presents is so that you know the security, the people backstage, the like the roadies to pay the artists. Like it's like it's all a part of that. The people at the concession stands to like rent the venue. It's like all going into like to fund this because, which is I find really interesting because with you know if the revenue stream sort of starts for artists starts to sort of like trickle out and like not be as lucrative with streaming and like this whole change this boom and bust thing you've been talking about and so there's a sort of turn towards the experience live shows other things as well which you've mentioned and yet still like that has like such a huge overhead and it's so much more costly and yet still these like label labels turned music companies you know, like start seeking out, okay, well, how do we then fund, fund this? And one way is like sponsorships and like, you know, no, exactly. I mean, it's selling attention, right? I mean, there's this crazy fact I read about like in the late two thousands, 
Tenants, which is a Scottish brewer, right? Um, and they were like, I read a report uh, doing research for this that if Tenants stopped supporting, like stopped um, um, sponsoring live music, the entirety of live performance in Scotland at every single level, from the biggest festival to the smallest nightclub, would collapse. <laughs> It was in, in t- I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, no, that's huge. That's totally huge. Yeah, and I think that it's it's interesting to you because I think that coming just on a personal level, like coming from like a more I guess DIY sort of punk background, there has always been and like growing up on the cusp of Gen X and like millennials, there's this sort of you know uh, resistance to that to sponsorships from sort of some sort of like big corporation. But I think what you also see, what you see during this time period is that you're not, as you just showcased, that you're not getting like many live shows other than like, you know, the one down at the small club or like in someone's basement, unless you have these sponsorships. Another thing that's interesting is that this is also the time you really see the rise of like Red Bull Music Academy and how that just became like this huge thing offering not only music, but these really intense, like intricate experiential performances that are not just about a concert but then have all these other elements to it you know and it's just like advertise and like red bull was willing to just go ahead and like put money into it seeing it as like okay not only is there a shift towards live music which is happening or like the experience maybe we should say but then also like the only way to fund that is through sponsorship. So we're going to go ahead and just take, take control of both those things, but we will decide who plays at this and we will control like what the concert is. And we will also be the advertiser. I mean, if you think about it, it's one of the real problems with the turn to live music, which is that it's almost by definition, a more regressive economically. It's almost always going to be more regressive. Like check this. Um, if you think about, like you said, with the cost of making a record can be fairly low and technology makes it cheaper and all the technologies of like distribution um, allow, allow it to really change, right? Um, so as pressing plants get better, as the internet allows the distribution of recorded music, the price per unit of the, dis- of the distributed music drops. But it costs exactly as much like techno- technologically to put a rock band on the stage today as it did in 1970 or like to put a a a concert uh like an orchestra on the stage today as it did in 1850 right there you can't use technology at some level to reshape or it's very difficult rather to use technology to reshape like the actual fact that live music requires live musicians in a place and that there's often limited numbers of people that can play that they can play for. So the live music, right? So a venue has a venue's max capacity is like 500, and like you need you know a certain amount of performances performers to get on stage, and this is the max amount of people that you can you can go ahead and put in here. And so like you charge them a certain amount, and like that's like a yeah. max that you can you know you still have to pay all these. And people, if you right? want a bigger venue, you have to build a bigger venue. You can't like disrupt it with tech. You can't like change it's like no there's people in a room or at least there were people in a room with the exception of rolling of say like the rolling stones or someone huge like that and i'm not even positive about that example you can't really go the pay-per-view route where you then charge you know 49.99 for some buddy on their couch so they can go ahead and watch this concert like nobody's gonna pay that 
Right. So the question then is like, how do you adjust to these economic realities if live performance is going to make up now a majority of the profits of the music industry? So what they do, right? For one, they raise ticket prices because you can do that. You got the gro- definitely felt that. <laughs> You've got the growth of festivals because festivals where they've got a big setup on stage, it costs, if you think about it, it costs less per band because you've already got all the setup. Right, you have one stage, you have 12 bands playing from 11 a.m. to like 9 p.m. And you can charge more because of the experience-ness of it. It also means you can play to bigger crowds at a festival too, so that is one yeah, think, way. Yeah, think... Right, think Coachella, where it's like you have multiple stages, but you don't have just have multiple stages with bands playing. You have all of this other sort of experiential stuff going on from, you know, weird interactive art sculpture to like a place where you could go like meditate and like video, con- you know, watch watch movies and like weird stuff. There's all this other stuff going on. Or I think a purest example is like, what do they do with Coachella to reduce, to, to make Coachella more profitable? They realize there's enough demand. They just run it twice doesn't cost right just run it twice it costs way less to run you know every time you run a show and it's why these superstar shows play so much right to make a beyonce performance it costs x amount of money and then each additional beyonce performance it's less expensive to produce it doesn't cost that much more probably i mean you have to pay everyone more but compared to the cost of building coachella <laughs> having it run twice does not cost that much more compared to how many more people you can get into that venue so I feel like there is this kind of regressive thing, right? Where almost by definition, because of like the physical constraints of live music, if you want to make money from it, there's always this push towards like bigger shows and more expensive shows. And that feels like that's baked into some of the very fabric of like the economics of what a live concert is. Is. And of course we can't we can't talk about this without also acknowledging the other aspect that there is a demand for it. People are, it's been proven especially at this point in like 2020 that that's what people want and people are willing to pay those prices to go. And I mean the reasons for that are, you know, there's a multitude of reasons, but there, you know, I think if we zero in on the sort of like kernel of like what it is that makes say a live show special. And it's something about being there and being able to say that you've been there. And of course this is all just heightened by social media where if I go to, you know, the Drake concert at Barclays center and like, obviously I get to then post that on my social media and like, it, you know, adds whatever like clout with like my friends or whatever, you know, or it's just like, you know, something that's like very cool and exclusive even though there's like 50,000 people there that like I got to go see this experience yeah no and just about like the demand there the amount of money that in 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 the amount of money of like tickets sold by Live Nation between which is only one of the two between 2008-2019 tripled and some of that's about centralization but some of that just is how big this industry has gotten nine billion dollars of u.s ticket sales that's a huge industry and it also as we all sit in quarantine and everything has been canceled including coachella as we were talking about it also just shows like how much of a dent this is like putting the fact that all this has been canceled to COVID 19 how much of a dent that has like put into the music industry and these streams of revenue and i think we've also seen it with live nations like stock like completely tanking along with all the other stocks but (laughs) 
so Saxon, I, I, I that, that that idea of experience, I think, is really important to all of this. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more on that, like this, because it does feel like, um, and it's experience as filtered through social media very much, and I think that social media is a huge part of this story. But as someone, you know, do you think that as someone who's been going to shows for a long time, do you think the experience of going to shows or the way you think about the experience of going to shows has changed? Do you think the way people experience going to shows has changed? Oh, I think so completely. And I think the thing that is most interesting about everything that we're talking about is, in my opinion, how little the music has actually changed itself in relation to this pivot towards the live music concert experience as we're discussing. I think the music hasn't really changed that much. I think there are some exceptions when it comes to, say, you know, I've mentioned this to you before, but like, say, Skrillex, you know, where I want to hear that. I mean, not personally, but, I, you know, I want to hear that bass drop in like a massive arena with like 100,000 people. And I would argue that that kind of music or that sort of his brand of dubstep bro step as i've also heard it called um you know is geared towards and maybe even made to a certain extent like for the club and then the arena and then you know the stadium but i would say that even on a like smaller level you know i you know writing and doing various like radio stuff about music you know for the last like i don't know 15 16 years i definitely have seen a huge transition towards the visual element in the live performance. And I think where I've seen that actually where it's been so obvious to me is in smaller shows. I'll go to a show at baby's all right, which for those who don't live in New York is like a pretty small venue slash bar in Brooklyn that I feel like it's kind of like, if you want to see a band that's like up and coming, it might become something. I think that probably that venue fits maybe a hundred, you know, maybe, and even at a show like that and a band that may not even have a full length record out yet, there seems to always be some sort of like visual element going on. And I mean, I've seen this across the board and there was a, there was a couple years there when I, I, I didn't, I kind of like wasn't going to as many live shows. And I remember when I started to, when I, I actually, when I got hired at Ribble Music Academy for a year and I started going to a lot more live shows again after like, I'd say like two or three years of like not going to as many as I used to. I I'd see, I even in that short period of time I saw a huge transition to you know projections and videos and like even like choreographed dancing at like a small venue where like only fits like 500 people or less which is something that you would I feel like normally expect at like a bigger from a bigger artist in a bigger venue but now you're seeing it at even sort of a smaller level and I think the reasons for that is that there's a need to sort of like stand out and whether or not it's consciously done by the artists themselves or not, there's also like a desire to be like reposted on a social media platform, which then could sell tickets when, you know, you do something crazy, you know, in like San Francisco, people in LA may see it on their social media and then want to go to your show in two days or, you know, wherever. And so I think there's like this, all these different sort of tentacles and arms coming in, like causing this. And it's interesting, but yeah, so it's been more like for me, like the visual aspect has been like a major player and a major addition and like almost like a necessity. Like, and it's funny because for me, I even now find myself mildly disappointed if I like go to a show and there isn't some sort of 
unique sort of visual element to it there are exceptions like i'll go to like you know a ty seagal show and like just watch him rock out and you know throw beer cans that's great but i think that for most artists that's almost become like a necessary addition to their live performances which just adds to reposting promotion putting yourself out there selling more tickets the whole thing no that makes a lot of sense and and i wonder um if you want to think about it like at a at a headier level, bro. Let's do it. Um, like, if you think, eh, if you think about, like, that there's a fundamental worry about, like, where, where, like, the real is in the music industry now, right? Like, there's no physical release. They're not selling that many of them. Is the real thing the album? It's like, uh, maybe, but, like, I see it streaming. Is, like, the real thing, like, the TikTok dance? It's like, I don't know. And so I feel like, uh, is the real thing the live show? And it used to be like, no, live shows were a real thing, but it was like, you know, you were going out and you would play the record because the record was the real thing that you were supporting. And the live show was built around this recorded music that was like the real actual where the music lived. And in this like world of music companies rather than record labels, I could see that like the, the, the extra visuals and the extra emphasis on that kind of spectacular performance in a live show makes the live show the real thing in a way that's both, like you said, like makes good business sense, but also helps to like stabilize some of this uncertainty in the music industry, maybe, right? That like, what is the music actually? It's like, oh no, there's a spectacular live show. You can't get that on record. It's different. It's better. It's an experience. And that experience is the real thing. Yeah, I I would totally agree with that. I think that, or I think that that's an, you know definitely like the the case for a lot of people, and it might be like a generational thing, or it might be sort of like a niche sort of thing where you know maybe for somebody like you who collects a lot of like vinyl and is actually willing down to still like sit down and listen to like a full record, walk over to the record player, flip it back, flip it over to the B side, etc. You know, don't like, out me. You don't really that. that now <laughs> come on man you live in brooklyn um <laughs> no but you know for you that's like you know and for me like that's still you know uh, a common thing that, that that is the real for us when it comes to music i guess but i think for maybe like a lot of people who aren't as part of that very small niche and i would say it's a pretty small niche um i think that going to the live show is really what it's about it's about the singles it's about whatever the playlist that you're making for your mood, for that time of day, you know, whether or not, you know, and then it's like about going to that live show and like having that full on experience. And I would also add that it's kind of interesting, too, because it all feeds into itself. And I think that when you look at an artist like Beyonce and really Beyonce is, you know, a company, <laughs> you know, um, her coming out with Lemonade where like every single song has a music video to it you watch that and then you buy the Beyonce ticket and then you go to that concert and when you hear a song off that record that has a music video related to it in a weird way you're kind of like wanting or you have that association and you're kind of wanting to see the live performance of that video that is connected to that song you know, so it's all kind of like it. So it, it gives also get like in that example, like gives Beyonce and company like even like more content to use in a live setting to sort of riff off of. 
and it's all connected opposed to like say and you know i think that's really interesting and actually really savvy opposed to say you know some like jam band as we mentioned earlier you know getting some like trippy visuals to like project on them which is great you know people really like that i like that but that trippy visual doesn't necessarily have like a connection with the actual song that they're playing or with that actual band and then like so like now you like when you go to beyonce it's like wow okay like she's projecting visuals or she's dressed this way in the same way that she was dressed in that video which this happened etc etc it's all like sort of really connected it's once again playing into what we've been talking about which is that experience um, instead of just like live show record it's like this whole connected thing yeah i mean it's it's a music ecosystem in a in a fundamentally new way and it means that music works in fundamentally new ways right and so I i find it though interesting though like how little like music has actually like changed because of it and like i'm curious do you think that you like will see in the future music shifting in a way that is like strictly like the actual music itself uh, shifting in a way that is more geared towards the live show or performance or uh, a Fortnite concert (laughs) i mean i don't know some of this connects to some of the I, i feel like some of it's dependent on how these trends fit in with a broader set of trends right and like which if you think about a river um, with different currents, like which current is stronger? So like at one level, my gut would be like, yes, this is a world in which a band that has a good reputation live, that could be really good for it. At another level, I feel like given the overall demonetization of the surrounding the records, right? that records make less money. So there's in a lot of ways, less money available to produce and promote records. Um, which means that records need to be made more cheaply. And I think what you get with kind of, um, low level automation in the music industry. And by that, I mean like garage band or like certain kinds of auto tune things that in fact reduce the cost of being a musician because they make it, while it doesn't reduce the quality of the art produced, they're just like a tool that makes it a little bit cheaper because you have to spend less time like nailing your harmonies or whatever. Um, And I feel like that stuff can be more difficult to translate to live. But if what's more important is to produce a song that people like and then to put on a spectacular live show, um, it it might not. Yeah, I find that super interesting, and it makes me think of a lot of different things, including if you want to be a band that makes the classic studio record where, you know, you're, like, holed up in the studio with, you know, 200 different kind of instruments, and you have, like, you record 30 songs, and only, like, 12 of them are going to make it, and, you know, you're going back and forth, and you're spending all this money, and it spends months and months and months. You almost really have to be a band that can, like, sell out like bigger venues because you, because otherwise you just don't have the revenue stream. And so, and, and so I, I find that like pretty interesting that like, it's almost on the other end. Of, so on the other end of the spectrum, it makes me wonder if you're more of like a sort of like traditional band in which like, you know, rock band that has like, you know, guitar, bass and drums. If what you're saying means they're pushed to sort of make like almost like a cheaper record that you know and don't eat and so like the they're pushed to sort of make a cheaper record and 
sort of like whatever ideas they have musically perhaps are like the their the how far they view off into the horizon of possibilities is actually like lessened and so there's almost more of an incentive for like a Ty Seagal to just make a fucking rock record that he can like churn out in like two weeks than there is to spend months and months and months in the studio unless you like have the space and you have you know your own space and like have all your own instruments and can record yourself there's sort of like less incentive to make that sort of you know, Kid A record or whatever. Well, I mean, certainly, like, Ty Seagal's not getting label support in the way that... or interference in a way that a Ty Seagal-level rock band would likely have gotten label support and or interference previously in the label system. Like, if you think about bands that kind of are like Ty Sigali in that they release a lot of records, they kind of do their own thing, they're medium popular, but not super popular. Like, in the past, like in the 70s, 80s, there aren't that many of them. In a weird way, the band that I feel like is like closest to Ty Sigal in the past is NRBQ, who released like, shouts to NRBQ, amazing band, New York's finest <laughs> rock and roll band. Um... They just, and they kind of like did their own like semi power pop, semi new wavy thing for like 15 records between like 69 and like 85 before calling it a day and didn't seem to really get any label help and didn't really seem to get any label interference. But I feel like a lot of bands, you they would do that thing where they tried to make a new wave record and tried to sell out and it changed and. You know, I just feel like the career looks super different. Yeah, well, that's interesting you say, um, like, like, label interference, if I can just interrupt for a minute. Because, like, yeah, I guess if you're on a bigger label, say you're on the level of, you know, I mean, I don't know, whatever big, huge band you you, you want to insert here. Like, if you, were, if you were, like, a band that was on a bigger label and you wanted to make, like, your OK Computer or your Kid A type record and, like, add all this sort of instrumentation, like, to it like the labels will probably push back and be like, no, can we just turn out a record so we can get you back on the road so we could start making money and you could also start making money. And it also makes me feel like as if that, if you think about, let's bring up like Fiona Apple, which we talked about in the last episode, a record in which is, is pretty intricate. And I, from what I've read, sound like she had, she had a lot of tape to sift through to like, you know, cut it down to what became fetch the bolt cutters. But she had the advantage of being able to record it all in her own house, which is also interesting, though, too, because I also wonder if the reason why she recorded in her own house is because she couldn't really make a record like this in a studio because, like, whatever label wouldn't support or put the money up for it. Well, I mean, I also wonder, and this might be getting kind of far afield into into uh, label stuff, but but I also wonder whether the limiting factor in this stops being the recording as much as it's the promotion, right? Because it feels like you still hear a lot about artists interfering with uh, record recording, but it's not like, I have not heard a story in a long time of the, of the, of the label being like, yo, get, get in the studio, pump out some shit, and you got to get back out in the fucking road. It's like, no, it's like the, the labels being like, this isn't good enough, this isn't good enough, this isn't good enough, because it, it seems to me that, again, going back to that kind of automation and with rec- the the, the the cost of recording decreasing because of technology the cost of promoting a record is still super high and the labels don't want to promote something that will allow it to get big that will then allow you to tour behind it or vice versa um they don't want to do that unless they they have something that they think 
will really will really go go well go go the fuck over and make sure that it sells yeah make sure that it sells tickets going once again to what we were talking about where like the cost of overhead is just like so much that they want to make sure that you know Bud Light or whatever <laughs> shout out to Post Malone uh, <laughs> you know is actually going to be on board for like whoever's new record but it, it the re- one of the reasons why I bring that up uh, is because of the fact that taking it all the way back to the beginning we are all stuck here in quarantine there are no live shows and i was also i was reading that uh sales of instruments has increased since we've all been on lockdown uh which is interesting because i remember reading an article a couple of years ago about how like sales of guitars were like plummeting and you know some higher ups who will not be named you know at like red bull music academy were like posting it in like the slack when I was working for them about how this is like the death of rock music, which is a whole another top topic, which we can talk about later. But it is interesting to me that like all these suddenly there's like an increase in people buying instruments because they're all sitting at home. And that inc- that includes artists who are like have record deals and like who have put out records. And so I'm kind of interested if like, you know, in a year's time or two years time, maybe there will be a sort of like return. And I don't know if I should say return because I'm not thinking about it that closely, but a sort of return to the studio album. And we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get a bunch of these, like, sort of, you know, more intricate, take your time, because what else does anybody have to do right now? But once again, the interesting thing about that, if you want to add the economic aspect to that, is that you make a super intricate record that has a lot more instrumentation than, you know, bass, guitar, drum, and that means one more person you got to put on stage for the live show, which means one more person that you got to pay. I heard that your band sold your guitars and bought turntables. <laughs> I heard that your band sold your turntables and bought guitars. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I like that. I like that. Yo, so, I mean, one of the things, what you were saying, Saxon, about live... Um, about the visual aspect of it also really helps me understand something that had been really bothering me as I was thinking through all this, which is like, where are the live albums, right? In a world of live performances, where live performances are the primary thing, you don't get that many live albums by bands. You get live sessions places, but like the idea that like, this is our live show and we're gonna give you a facsimile of it uh, to listen to as an artistic statement. I mean, I, there's not, I mean, besides again, like Beyonce, um, there just aren't that many live albums I can think of that are like statement live albums from any bands, which is kind of, I was trying to puzzle through why that might be. Um, and I think what you're talking about with the experience of it really helps make sense of it. Right. It's like, if the live show is the real thing, People actually don't want, and the the lot and the the non live album, the studio album, is in some ways like a feeder into that. A live album's almost meaningless. It's like a weird copy of the real thing, but there's already a better or a different copy of the real thing. Like I feel like its artistic status is very weird, and that might be why there's so few of them out there now. I mean, I would argue that there's always been sort of a like hit and miss aspect to the live record. Where, you know, you get like live at Budokan by like Cheap Trick, and that's like a legendary record. But there's, you know, for every every one of those records, there's like ten live records that have been like, you know, 
thrown in the dustbin of history. <laughs> but I, I do also, I do think that your point is still valid. And it, not to bring him up again, but it's actually interesting because Ty Seagal came out with a live record, I think last year, maybe this year, I think last year. And, you know, as a fan, I was like, I don't really know if I really care about listening to that. <laughs> you know, because, you know, and it's, uh, yeah, I think that it's, Especially because of the fact that, like, if I want to somehow relive or, you know, view one of my favorite artists or an artist I like perform a song live, then I can just and see what the visual aspects of it were or just see how they did it differently. I can just go online. Like, what's a live record compared to, like, me going onto YouTube and like finding said artist perform that song live and actually probably find actually good video of it beyond just like a cell phone video. I mean, the thing to me would be presentation by the artist, right? Like if you think about the seventies, which is kind of the classic era of live albums, um, the stadium show was a new thing. It's a new social technology, the ability to like get a fuck ton of people together into a place it reproducibly blow out their eardrums with high decibel rock music and almost every major band released at least one live record i mean some of that's like contractual shit i'm sure but also i feel like um what they did was in some ways they were like this is our live show is its thing unto itself and this is a representation of it and when you go on youtube ty you know the difference between you youtubing ty seagal from like a pretty good live video of it somewhere and Ty Seagal releasing a live album is that presumably Ty Seagal has artistic control over that live album in a way he does not have over that YouTube video. Right. But then once again, like, where's the demand for it? No, I'm saying I think there is none. I think that 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 says something about like where the realness of the music is. Yeah. 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 No, I, I agree. I, I definitely agree. So I, I got like two more things like one, uh, like uh, would you say then that uh, David Bowie was correct when he, he said that music itself is going to become like running water or electricity and then in giving advice to uh, fellow performers that you better be prepared to do a lot of touring because that's really the only unique situation that's going to be left? Kind of. He wasn't really taking into consideration, you know, a Travis Scott concert on Fortnite, but basically the same thing. I mean, yeah. I, 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 yes and no, right? Like, at one level, yes. I think that it is going to be the idea of music as like a single discrete thing that you buy is clearly on the way out. Um, but I guess what's important, I guess what I would say is that with David Bowie, blessed be his name, um, is, isn't taken into consideration is the fucking weirdness of 1960 to 1998. Right. Yeah. If you go through like the whole music has always been used to sell and to move and to like organize things that are given more value by society than the music itself. I feel like like initially music like used to sell fucking pianos. Pianos were expensive as shit. Music was pretty cheap. Used to sell stereo systems. Used to like sell the experience of an automobile. Um used to sell computers and now it's used to sell attention right like when everyone goes to coachella or anyone goes to like made in america produced you know by pepsi or something what's a what's valuable is their attention the music is actually in some ways the a lot of times like the least valuable aspect of it but it's really good at 
grabbing us and making us focus on some things. Um, so maybe less like, like running water and more like, um, more like love, man. <laughs> well, that leads to my next uh, question or point. <laughs> I find it really interesting <laughs> in how music can possibly, if it could bring our attention to something, it could also cover up other things. And I'm referencing uh, Saudi Arabia buying a huge part of Live Nation. Uh, Live Nation stocks are like tanking, as I mentioned. And the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is now like the third largest shareholder of Live Nation. Part of that is part of their whole plan to like diversify their economy with like since like oil prices are like uh, getting cheaper and cheaper. But part of it is also, I think, to present Saudi Arabia in a good light. Uh, they're also involved in possibly buying, as of this recording, Newcastle United, which is a uh, top Premier League team and always a good way to sort of like get in the hearts and minds of, uh, in, in, in a good way, of, uh, of, of people, of the population. How do you feel about the, the next Live Nation concert you're going to being sponsored by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia? <laughs> Saudi Arabia presents I mean, like, Jay-Z. It's, <laughs> it's, you know, um, I don't know, man. We all lived through America. 3K is brought to you by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Looking at you, Bush right. family. <laughs> um, it's a good question. Um, I mean, like, go all the way fucking back, man. Bread and circuses. Bread and circuses works. Yep. The ability... Mm-hmm like really change how people engage with the world through human culture is so incredibly valuable. And music is such an important way that human beings define their identity, define their friend group, define their gender, define the intimate experiences that structure a life. It's why when Alzheimer patients are like almost completely non-responsive, like songs that they fell in love to in like the 30s or 40s or 50s can bring them out of it um music is an incredibly powerful part of life and yeah man i think that probably it will work and i think it's incredibly powerful and second and this is the problem not just in the music industry but across all kinds of stuff it's the increased power of monopolies right whether or not you like it, you're not going to be able to avoid going to a, buying a show from Ticketmaster or going to a Live Nation concert. There's nothing else for it. These monopolies and you capitalism, Spotify, Google. I mean, the, the, the power of these monopolies and the centralization and concentration that's occurred in the last 20 years is fucking nuts. I mean, these companies didn't exist before like 95. Nothing like what they they do now. Um and without regulation, you get bread and circuses. Right. And I mean, the reality of it is, I mean, the amount of people that are going to like, you know, choose from a moral or ethical standpoint to like not buy tickets to a concert because like it will go in the pockets of like the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, uh, which is renowned for <laughs> its lack of uh, civil rights. Uh yeah, is is gonna be small. It's gonna be a small population who decides not to do that, and it's not gonna really put a dent in Life Nation's profits or the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, 
So I guess we will see. We will definitely be covering all of this story more. We're going to be looking in future weeks at venues. We're going to be looking at future weeks probably more at live streaming. Um, we're definitely going to be diving into a lot of these issues. Um, so thanks for listening. Um, and this is Money for Nothing. Yeah, thank you. Until next time. Thank you.